Good, good morning. Good morning. Um, it's been already a delightful morning worshiping together, praising songs to our God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and meeting some new faces, some familiar faces, and some faces that knew about me and I didn't know about them. So it's, it's been a good full morning. And before we go to the Word of God, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day where your mercy is renewed, your glory shines. Creator of all things, creator of heaven and earth, creator of each one of us here, the one who has absolutely, absolute authority and rights over us. And Father, in your divine providence, you have spoken. You have spoken divine words, you have spoken words of life, and you have recorded them for us in this book that we call Bible, but which really is divine word. And we thank you for the book of Psalms, and we thank you for Psalm 14, written by David, your king. And we thank you for the truths that are in it. We pray, Father, as we approach your word, that you will give us holy reverence, delightful joy, and obedience in hearing your word, in obeying your word, and in trusting you with all our hearts. For the praise of Christ our King, we pray. Amen. There are two kinds of foolishness in the world, we could say. There is a foolishness that we all know about, and it is that kind of foolishness that leads some people and, and some of us to do foolish things, uh, to do, to say foolish things at the wrong time, saying wrong things at the wrong time, or to do wrong things at the wrong time. There are certain people that just seem that they cannot do anything right. They just keep on acting foolishly, and what that kind of foolishness leads to is laughs, usually. It is a kind of laughable foolishness. But then there is another kind of foolishness, which is, I dare to say, more important and more serious, and then it is that kind of foolishness that is not only laughable, but there is that kind of foolishness which is ultimately damnable. And there's that kind of foolishness that our Psalm 14 talks about. So open your Bible and turn to Psalm 14. And let's read the Word of God together. Psalm 14, for the choir master of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they have committed abominable deeds, there is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread? And do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. 
You will put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel will be glad. There are two questions that are some answers, and there are two kinds of questions that we do ask uh, pretty much on a regular basis. The first question is, where does all the evil in this world come from? Why there is such an evil, such a disaster in this world and in my life? And the second kind of question it is that we ask is, is there any hope? And is there any hope for the people of God in this world? And these are the two kinds of questions that this psalm answers. <clears throat> As we'll go through this text, let me give you first the outline I think you have in your bulletin. And it's, uh, we'll look, we'll follow that direction. There are pretty much two bigger sections, and the first is divided into two as well. So the first is the foolishness of, of the fool, verses 1 to 6. The foolishness of the fool. And in that, we'll have two sections. The first is the fool in relation to God, and then the fool in relation to God's people. And the second section is the hope and expectation of deliverance, verse 7. As we go through each one of these sections, we will see the truths that they proclaim, they announce to us through a poetic form. So let's start with the first, the foolishness of the fool in verses 1 to 6. So let's focus verse 1 to 3. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They, are, they have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understood who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. The psalm starts with this individual, the fool. And before we read the rest, we need to understand who is the fool. What does this fool look like, even apart from this psalm? What is the bigger picture? In Psalm 78, in 74, verse 18 and 22, we find a, another description of the fool. Is Psalm 78, verse 18 and 22. In their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in His salvation. The, food, the fool is one who puts God into test. It is one that says, there is no God in his heart. Psalm 10, verse 4 and 11. Psalm 10, verse 4 and 11 says, The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him, does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. 
verse 11, he says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. What is this text getting at? What is the picture of the fool that we, that we gather from this? So the fool is someone who scoffs at God, laughs at God, does not trust in God. And as we see in our psalm, someone who says there is no God. But what does it mean to say that there is no God? Does the fool is the kind of atheist who writes articles and books? Is the kind of person who denies absolutely denies the existence of God? Well, the answer is yes on one side. Is someone who denies the existence of God, but then there is also the other side, which is a practical atheism. It's a practical foolishness. It is the foolishness that says, Psalm 10, verse 11, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. What the psalm is getting at is a kind of practical atheism who says, God doesn't care. God doesn't look down. God is disinterested in the affairs of men. And brothers and sisters, we could go, we could look so much on the other side that we forget that so many times, so often, we do act ourselves like fools. When we forget that God indeed is looking down, that God cares for the affairs of men, that God is watching everything that we do. When we talk to our spouses, when we harshly rebuke our children, when we get offended for nothing, when we gossip and we speak about other people, when we close the door and we just do what we think nobody else will see, we want to think and and to say to ourselves that God is not looking, this God is not seeing. In those moments, make no mistake, we are acting like a fool. And so David is speaking about everyone. And this becomes clear because right after that, he goes to the general idea. He uses they, the general they. In verse 1, when David writes, they are corrupted, they have committed, committed abominable deeds, the first word is more a word of moral depravity. In other words, it says the corruption is moral first. And then the abominable deeds follow. The connection is clear. The evil works, evil deeds follow a certain approach to God. The rejection of God is the foundation for the evil works that follow it. <clears throat> Verse 1 and verse 3, they are, so to speak, an inclusion. They, they talk about the same idea. Verse 1, it talks about the, the, the fact that people are corrupt and they have committed abominable deeds. And verse 3, they have all turned aside. They have become corrupt. Again, there is no one who does good. So we have these two ideas, the open and close, this section, and it 
talking about the full, but then what do we find in the middle? What do we find in the middle is what David emphasizes in one sense by sandwiching, so to speak, this idea. Yahweh, the Lord, has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men. In contrast to the fool who believes that God is not interested in the affairs of men, that he is aloof and only and remi- remains in heaven, instead David tells us that actually God looks down. As if he would be looking through a window, he looks down and, try- and seeks and searches and looks to find if anyone, if anyone is actually, actually seeking after him. Is actually, genuinely trying to find him. But the shocking reality is that no one does. In Ezekiel 18, we are told that the Lord doesn't take pleasure in the death of anyone. It is that idea that God indeed is looking for those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is not aloof. God is interested in the affairs of men. And then look at verse 3. An incredible reality. The Bible is so is so uh, true, but it's so realistic. And it penetrates the reality of our life. They have all turned aside. Now there is a new idea. Together, they have become corrupt. Together, they have become corrupt. What is this together? I think the Isaiah 40, verse 5 to 7, gives an idea, a picture. I must have written down my references wrong. I'm sorry. It's chapter 41. Chapter 41. The Coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And he fastens it with nails, so that it will not totter. What Isaiah is talking about is the construction of idols. In contrast to God saving his people and having a people who worships him, the contrast with the coastlands, with the with the Gentiles, with the people out there who see the work of God and come together and say, we need to stand together. We need to encourage one another to do what? To craft idols. The work of man's hands. And this is the truth from the beginning. The men encourage one another in pursuing evil and wickedness. Remember Genesis 11? Babylon or Babel. 
what was, the mankind was together. And they said, let us build a city for our name. Let us. It's always a togetherness. There is a certain kind of togetherness in seeking evil, in pursuing unrighteousness. And we see it more than ever before, perhaps, on our social media. Right? We seek encouragement to pursue evil on television. When sexual immorality is encouraged and exalted. Man seeks the approval of men to pursue what is evil. And God knows about it. It's together that have become corrupt. And so what is the doctrine that this first section teaches us? What is the first doctrine? It is the doctrine that is being called a total depravity, but is, we can say it, it is the doctrine of universal total depravity. In other words, it is not just that one person is completely depraved, it's that each one of us, every single human being which was ever born on this side of the fall, on this side of the garden, is corrupt, is evil. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fell. And God had told them, in that day, you will die. And it was the beginning, the first sin that introduced sin in the world. In Genesis 8, verse 21, God says that the intents of mankind are continually evil, are evil from his youth. Evil from his youth. Children. Are you listening? The intents of your heart are already evil. And in Romans 3, Paul uses this text, this very text, to talk about both the Jews and Gentiles, that there is no one, no one, no one, does good. It is the doctrine of total universal depravity. But now you may say, you may bring this objection, so you may say, oh wait, wait, okay, I get that. But what about the innocent child who is born in Africa? I mean, seriously, he dies when he's seven. He didn't have opportunity. He never heard the gospel. What about that one? And the Bible has the, has the answers. In Psalm 51, the same author of this psalm, verse 5, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. There is the wrong ideal that there is an innocent person somewhere who was born innocent. Well, there was only one who was born innocent. We know his name, Jesus Christ. But apart from him, no one was ever conceived innocent but in sin. So there is no innocent person on the earth. Well, second objection, you say, okay, maybe I get that. But what about the philanthropist? What about that person who does so much good for people who helps, is always there on the front line to help when disaster comes? What about that person and the Bible tells us in Hebrews eleven six that apart from faith, we cannot please God. 
We can please one another, but we cannot please God. You say, okay, well, it's getting kind of bleak here, the situation. But what about, what about the religious person? Maybe the religious person has something to bring before God. And once again, the Bible tells us their situation is bleak. In Isaiah 64, 6, the prophet writes that all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All our righteous deeds are like filthy garment. And that is Isaiah speaking. One of the greatest prophets of Israel. So there is no hope in mankind. There is no hope to be found in ourselves. And you say, what about me? What about me now? And I answer, what about the Ten Commandments? Have you broken the Ten Commandments? Or have you kept them perfectly? Have you loved God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? Have you given Him everything and everything that you are and everything that you have? No, you know. And have you loved your neighbor as you're supposed to love your neighbor? Have you hated your neighbor in your mind? Have you lust after other things or other people? Have you lied? We know the answer is yes to all of it. And not only we have the commandments of God to bear witness against us, we also have our own conscience to bear witness against us. We know that there is something wrong with us. We know that there are certain things that we should not do, certain things that we should do, and our conscience tell us, and we act against our conscience. And so why I'm telling you all of this? Well, first of all, because this is what the Word says. Psalm 14. But second, is because unless we first know our condition, there is no hope for us to be saved from that condition. Unless we first know how bleak and dark and hopeless our condition is, we do not know what we, are meant, what we need to be saved from. And so the Bible is so realistic, and it gives us first the condition of mankind, our condition. But then looks, look after that. Verse 4, <clears throat> second, the full in relation to God's people. So that was the full in relationship in relation to God. Now this is the full in relation to God's people. Verse 4 to 6. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You have put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Two things to see in this section. First is 
how the wicked relates, relates to God's people, and we mentioned that. And the second is how God relates to both groups, to the wicked and to his people. We have an interesting contrast. So first, how does the wicked relate to God's people? Look at verse 4. They eat up. They eat up my people. And verse 6. They will put to shame the counsel of the wicked. Eating and putting to shame. The picture is like that God's people is so frail that it's like bread. That the wicked can take into his hands and break and eat up and chew and digest. And that is gone. And there is a certain kind of enmity that brings the wicked to desire to shame the righteous. Notice the relationship that the, how one relates to God defines how one relates to his people. It is because the, the fool abhors God that the fool is against, is against God's people. But where does the threat come from for God's people? Where does the threat come from? Well, it comes from two sides. It comes from the inside and from the outside. It comes from the inside and from the outside. First, from the outside. Jeremiah 10, verse 25. Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the families that do not call your name, for they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him and consumed him, and have laid waste his habitation. So the threat for God's people is first from the outside, of those that are against him. But then there is another threat that comes from the inside. Micah chapter 3, and you don't need to go there, I can just read it to you. But Micah chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. <clears throat> and I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil. Wow. Who tear off their skin, the skin of your people, from them and their flesh from their bones. Who eat the flesh of my people. Strip off their skin from them. Break their bones and chop them up as for the pot and as meat in the cattle. Wow. Which one actually looks worse? It almost seems like that the second description, the attack from the inside, looks worse than the attack from the outside. Israel was supposed to have righteous leader to lead the nation to worship Yahweh, to know the Lord, to glorify Him, and to live in a righteous way, and to defend them. But what happens is the opposite. They love evil and they hate good. And they use the people of God as seasoning for the meat. Unbelievable. But that is what the Lord Jesus also said to his disciples. That there will be those that are clothed in sheep clothing, but they're inside, they're like wolves, ravenous, ravenous wolves who want to eat up the people of God. And that is one of the greatest threats for the people of God, the threats from the inside, on those that proclaim to know Christ, on those that proclaim to love the people of God, but who lead the people of God astray. 
And so the, we could relate to God's people in that way. Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry writes this way, commenting on this verse. They eat up God's people with as much greediness as they eat up bread. Such, as, such an innate and inveterate enmity they have to them. And so hardly do they desire their ruin because they really hate God whose people they are. The reason why they eat God's people is because they want to devour God first. And so that is how the, we could relate to the people of God. But then there is now the other side to consider. How does God relate to this group, that wicked, that fools, and how does God relate to his people? Look at here. First, the way that God relates to the fool. Verse 5, there they are in great dread. There they are in great dread. Well, what is that? The, the verse actually kind of reads, they, are, they fear with great fear. Like emphatic, the idea of fear. And it seems as if almost the psalmist can see a place where the fool will be fooled. Where the fool who has acted all his life against God and against his people will actually have great reason to fear. We have a word in English, which is phobia, uh, which relates to fear. And usually a phobia is a kind of fear that almost is irrational. Like a phobia of being in a closed space. And it might be because of trauma or something in someone's past. But in and on itself, it's kind of irrational. And so we have a lot of different kinds of fear. But the fear which the psalmist is talking about is not an irrational fear. It is a fear that is actually very, has any reason to be there and to exist. It's the fear of having God himself being against you. In Isaiah 41, verses 11 to 13, the Lord said, Behold, all those who are angered at you, talking about his people, will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but you will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. So what is the end of the fool? It is almost as if there is no end. They will be no remembered. They will be as nothing. But we know, brothers and sisters, we know, my friend, that that place is actually a place of terror and a place that will never cease to exist. It's a place that we call it as hell or the lake of fire. The place where the wicked will be judged for all that he or she has done. And so that is how God relates to the wicked, relates to those who are opposed to him and to his people. But how does God relate to his own people? 
he relates in a completely different way. Look at verse 5. For God is with the righteous generation. God is with the righteous generation. In verse 6, you will put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. So how does God relate to his people? He is with them, and he is their refuge. Psalm 46, verse 1 to 3, we read, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its welling pride. In other words, although the whole earth should go nuts, we can not fear, because God is the refuge of the righteous. He's a stronger rock than the rocks who tremble. And it is on that rock that your life can stand and remain safe. So what are the doctrines that this text, that Psalm 14 here tells, conveys us about? First of all, is that God's retribution. In other words, God brings back, God repays according to our deeds. And the most important deed is whether or not we love him. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 9 and 10, the Lord says that he will show mercy and compassion to the thousand generations of those who love him. But he will repay, he will repay to those who hate him. And so the first is God pays back. The, the fool wants to flee away, go away from God, and God will let him go. But then, the second truth, and this is an incredible thing, is the idea that God has a remnant. Look at this. We went from verse 3 to verse 4. And what happened in verse 4? They eat up my people. Wait, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. We spent a whole, we spent a chunk of our time to say that there is no one who is righteous. That everyone is wicked. That we are completely, totally depraved, every one of us. So where does these people come from? Is that people from Mars? I mean, do they come from another planet? No. But how do they, how is that God has a people then? And this, my friend, is incredible reality of the remnant. That God has always a people whom he has chosen and loved before the foundation of the world. And he has called and he will not lose them. The Lord Jesus said that the father gives him the sheep and he will never lose them. No one can snatch them out from his hand. It is that people that God has so loved that he has given his son for and his son has bled for. It is a people that is a righteous people because the righteous one has paid on their stead. Second Corinthians 5.21, we know that verse. 
He who knew no sin, he made to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Why? Because of Christ. God has always a people. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and people for God's own possession. Wow. Wow. It's because He has chosen you first. That you have loved Him second. But then, and connected to this, is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. Well, it is a good news that God has a people, but we see here people who eat up these people. People who, are, who want to devour these people. Can these people make it? Can these people make it till the end? And this is the great comforting doctrine. That God preserves those whom he calls. First Peter 1, 3, and 5. The Apostle Peter writes this beautiful verse, beautiful verses. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Did you hear it? The preservation of the saints that God protects you through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed, for an inheritance which He, he is keeping. He keeps the inheritance and he keeps the ones for, we, for whom that inheritance was made in the first place. A God has always a people, no matter what. It might be two, three, or seven in the ark. It might be 100,000. It might be millions. But God has always a people. He always has a people. And he preserves and keeps and protects and preserves that people because he loves that people. Because it is a people for whom he has given himself. He could not have given more. He gave himself through the second person of the blessed Trinity. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who took upon himself all their unrighteous deeds that these fools, us, have done. All the corruption and all the abominable deeds. It's because He has taken up for us. And so, the third section, the hope and expectation of salvation. Verse 7, Oh, the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. When the Lord restores His captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. Oh, who wrote this psalm? Who wrote this psalm? David. Who was David? The king of Israel. 
What isn't he supposed to be the deliverer of Israel? Well, why then does he write, Oh, the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. Wasn't he in Zion? Oh, he knows. He knows that he is not the answer for the salvation of God's people. He knows David himself, the great king of Israel, the one who was anointed by God himself to say, I've chosen one that is after my heart. He knew. He knew his heart. He knew his heart. Oh, yes, he loved God, but he knew. Oh, he wasn't perfect. He needed redemption. He needed to be saved too. And so he cries out at the end. He says, oh, the salvation will come out of Zion. Salvation will come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, when the Lord restores the fortune of his people, that is language of restoration from exile. Later prophets will use that language to talk about God restoring them from Babylon when God will restore the fortunes of his people. David is looking ahead. He's looking ahead. And he knows a greater king must come for him and all the people of God to be saved. From Israel down to our age and then later until the Lord will come again. It is one and one alone that will come. And it is our hope and it is our expectation when the Lord Jesus will come again to deliver his people and to save them both from their sin but also from the wrath to come and from their enemies. And so let me ask you now in conclusion, let me ask you, which group are you part of? Are you the fool which David is talking about? Or are you part of God's people? We have seen it before. It is not because you were born of a Christian family. It is not because you have done righteous works. It is not because you are kind. It is only... If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is a personal relationship. It is an individual transaction. When you confess your sins to God and you say, Save me, a wretched man. And He, in His grace and kindness, looks down upon you. Individually. And he says, I forgive you. I forgive you. Have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Make no mistake, he is coming again. This time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly Waiting for him. Just as Hebrews 9 says. So Christ also. Having been offered once. To bear the sins of many. Will appear a second time. For salvation. Without reference to sin. To those who are eagerly. Eagerly. 
waiting for him? Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your excellent word. We can make no justice to it, Lord, but it is, truly, it is a living word that cuts through the heart and the marrows and the bones and it convicts us and it shows us how much we fall short. And we pray, O oh Father, that you would in your mercy look down and send your spirit to those who are not yet trusting Christ alone for their salvation and that you will make them born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that will explode in their hearts by their union with him through faith. Bless us now as we go. In the name of Christ. Amen.